one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, fever dreams. We got a big update for you. J.R. Majewski, the QAnon congressional candidate in Ohio we talked about last week, he won his primary. Kelly, what do you think this says about the state of the Republican Party? Well, first of all, I think it's very unfair that you're calling him a QAnon candidate. He says he's not a QAnon candidate, despite the fact that he spray painted giant Qs on his lawn. Total coincidence. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's, you just have to do Qs on your lawn. In all seriousness, right? We talked last week about the growing QAnon caucus, and that's actually a thing now. Like, there are now, what, three, four presumably elected Congress members who have been on the record hyping this stuff for years before they took office. This is an interesting guy. We talked about uh, last week, this guy had these various, his claim to fame was painting a Trump yard sign, like a, a massive one, like 19,000 square feet that, you know, you could see from space or see from the air into his lawn. And this got Trump into him. But after we recorded and after he won this primary last week, I said, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. What are this guy's connections exactly to QAnon? Because he had this kind of sort of a blanket. I'm not a QAnon guy, huh? Uh, what's that? And what I loved about this is there is literally a video just proving exactly what he says each time about his connection to QAnon. So he says, well, I don't know about these QAnon codes. I don't know about that. Well, I have video of him on one of these little like QAnon decoder shows where he's like getting deep. And he's like, all right, pull up the clues. You know? <laughs> he's in the deep lore. <laughs> and as you mentioned, this video of him saying, yes, I carved a Q in my lawn in the 2020 in the Trump sign, turned the zeros into Qs. Andrew Kaczynski had seen and got video of him doing it. I mean, it's just wild to me how, I guess, just lazy the denials are. It's so fun. I mean, like, listen, these people don't care, right? It, this is not a detraction for most of their voters. They're kind of speaking the same language. They're all kind of, oh, I'm not a Q guy. But for some people, this is actually a selling point. What is fascinating about this guy, too, is, I mean, literally, like, he seems to be one of the greatest QAnon devotees out there. I mean, so he says there was this picture going around of him on his fancy lawn wearing a Q shirt. Okay, so we got, that's Q shirt number one, right? And then he says, well, I donated that to charity. He gave it to Goodwill. He dropped it in one of the bins in the supermarket parking lot. Okay. <laughs> and then I watched a couple more videos of him and each one, he's wearing a different bit of QAnon merchandise. So he's got a sweatshirt. He's got a big follow the white rabbit shirt. He's got another QAnon shirt with a big Trump on it. I mean, this guy has, I think, more QAnon merchandise than basically any actual QAnon person I've ever talked to. Whoa, where are all these shirts coming from? <laughs> 
Well, somebody at a Goodwill store, they're going to have like a whole Q section now. You can mix and match a good outfit. J.R. Majewski's QAnon <laughs> closet dumped as soon as he won the primary. I mean, it was just so funny. I was watching this like the Zapruder film where I was like, all right, it's like a shirt with Trump on it. I'm like, wait a minute. Does that say where we go one, we go all on it? This guy's got to be kidding me. So this is the, the kind of character I think we can look forward to being in Congress now. It's a battleground district, but I think he's certainly favored and Republicans are favored for the fall. So we're putting down our marker now here at Fever Dreams. This guy is going to be a Madison Cawthorn, Marjorie Taylor Greene level Republican character in Congress. So expect to see more of him. Maybe he'll put a big sign on the congressional lawn as well. <laughs> Maybe we can get his Q merchandise on like Poshmark. He can start a side hustle store there. What, the real real? <laughs> Or, or maybe it'll be knocked off for shine. Okay, Kelly, you've got an update on the feckless young leader of the white nationalist America First movement, Nick Fuentes. Things are not all rosy in America First Land. Yeah, it's amazing when these nice, upstanding young men seem to have interpersonal conflicts. You say, where did that come from? But Nick Fuentes, for longtime listeners, will probably remember he is the leader of America First. It's sort of a Christian fascist youth movement. But now some of Fuentes's right-hand men are leaving his movement and calling it cult-like. And part of this feud originates with one of those guys getting a girlfriend, which is something Fuentes notoriously opposes. Right. So to set this guy up, I mean, he's relatively young. He marched in Charlottesville. Now, I'll tell you what, not on the Antifa side. He marched in Charlottesville in 2017. And since then, he's had this kind of rise as the leader of, I, I think, a bunch of dispossessed or certainly young men who feel they're dispossessed who are varying shades of white nationalists. He's certainly very much a white nationalist and a Holocaust denier. And yet he's managed to rub shoulders with legitimate Republican lawmakers. I believe both Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared at his events. Absolutely. Yeah. Gosar is like a two-timer at Fuentes events. Marjorie Taylor Greene just earlier this year went to one of Fuentes' events and he actually introduced her on stage. So, I mean, yeah, he was at Unite the Right Charlottesville, but he isn't some completely marginal character that we can just call a wingnut. He actually does have inroads with the mainstream GOP, and it seems to be just because like he'll wear a suit. Like that's it. That's really where the bar is these days. He's what they call an optics cuck because he's <laughs> looking for the optics. And yet he has an unusual rule for his movement, which which is to say no GFs. Oh yeah. So Fuentes will often describe himself as an incel, you know, someone who can't get laid. And a lot of people will dunk on him for that. I'll say that's pathetic. You're 23. But I think it's actually a very canny talking point that he has, because he's saying that to recruit angry young men. He's saying that so that he can be just openly misogynistic. He calls himself a misogynist. It's not even a point of debate for him. Actually, can we play a clip from him just the other day talking about why having sex with women is actually, quote, gay? As opposed to less gay. Not that there's any gay, but it makes me not gay. Well, because think about it this way. A gay person, gay people do date girls all the time. And when I said on Elijah Schaefer's show, when they said, have you ever been in a romantic relationship? Have you ever had sex with a girl? And I said, no. If you name searched me on Twitter, as I always do, all these gay people are coming out and saying, I've had more girlfriends than Nick. I've, I've had sex with more girls than Nick. So like I said last week, not only is, not only is that thinking flawed, but actually it's the reverse. That actually makes me really more heterosexual than anybody. 
So that sounds like a normal, well-adjusted young man, but he's not a fan of women and he doesn't like it when his followers date women. And all this became a problem for him this month after Jaden McNeil, the former treasurer of America First, who was living in Nick Fuentes' basement for a long time, got a girlfriend and stopped spending 100% of his time doing underpaid labor for Fuentes. It's an interesting movement because on one hand, you have Fuentes and his crew are various shades of trad cat or these kind of reactionary Catholic converts. And yet, as soon as someone starts maybe going on the path to marriage and having a family, you're out of the club. Totally. And I mean, I think that speaks to just the really shocking youth of this movement, right? I mean, they range from like 15 to 25. And I think it's actually hard for people outside of that age range to stay in the movement Because if you follow any normal growth progression, you're probably going to want a partner and a family, something like that. But he sells this really... So what happened to Jade after he went on a date? So Fuente starts getting really catty with him, starts shit-talking him on live streams. He apparently broke off their friendship because McNeil left, like, a side door open in the house that they shared. You know, just really, really petty stuff. And it gets so bad that McNeil puts out a statement saying, I'm distancing myself from America first. And he, the other day, went on a live stream to talk about the drama because that's how they sort through their interpersonal issues as they stream it. To sort of like set the stage for the audience, this is a years-long community of live streaming lunatics, both affiliated with Nick Fuentes and not. This dates back to Gamergate. And so you have these like characters with names like the Ralph Retort and the Gamer Gator. Now that's the gator like you might find in a swamp. And each of these characters has their own hideous personality all their own. And they alternately hate each other and fight each other and love each other and have these like strange backwoods bowling alley tournaments i mean it's this incredibly like complex scene and yet when you look at the view counter and it's like a thousand people watching and i'm like all right well the passions are high but the audience can be small oh and can i tell you something so one of the allegations that mcneil made on this recent live stream is that even those kind of low beat listener numbers even those are fake he says that nick fuentes uses like bots to artificially amplify his viewer numbers and that he only has a small group of hardcore fans. And according to McNeil, even that hardcore base is starting to turn against Fuentes because Fuentes apparently runs this group kind of like a cult. He says that Fuentes will like dox people if he thinks they're insufficiently loyal. Someone tried to quit and Fuentes threatened to report him to the feds, which is a huge no-no line in this world. That's the other thing, right, is like all these people constantly think that their friends are federal informants. Oh, yeah. And I mean, in this case, they have actually zero qualms about doing exactly that, right? They will throw each other under the bus. Right. They think this with very good reason. They're maybe not wrong to suspect that their buddy is setting them up for something. Right. And I mean, Fuentes is doing this totally openly, right? I mean, he's threatening to dox people. He's tossing people out of the club if they're not perfectly loyal to him. I'm just going to pull a few quotes from this live stream because it was very funny to me. To set the scene, I mean, this is someone who looks like he's 16, right? Who's basically escaped from this white nationalist leader's basement, more or less. This friendship has ended and this guy is on the run figuratively speaking and he's appearing on a podcast called like the internet casino and there's
there's all these like gifts going off in the back. It is absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, it, this is somebody talking about, and I'm not especially sympathetic to it, but what is probably a traumatizing event in his young life. And there's people like they're hitting the reaction buttons and the lights are going off and everyone's name is like pee pee poo poo. And it's great. It's really highbrow entertainment. But yeah, I mean, when you actually listen to the quotes Jaden McNeil's giving, he sounds pretty traumatized. He's going, Nick Fuentes is threatening me. He's doxing my biggest supporters. He has my social security number. And he said something that was actually really striking to me. He goes, Nick has brainwashed these young men. I was one of them, obviously. Anyone who has any kind of clout within this organization, you can't really leave. You're kind of stuck in it. And I think that was my takeaway from this, right, is because this movement is so steeped in doing live streams and being just really racist and ridiculous in public. And that ruins people's lives. Like you can't go and get a normal job after that. So they turn further and further into this movement, which really does function almost like a cult. It turns out that teaming up with like the teen neo-Nazis was not a fabulous move long term. No, absolutely not. It's not really something you want on your long term resume. To bring it back here, think about this. So on one hand, we have this almost like this teen drama in a very malevolent way playing out. On the flip side here, Nick Fuentes is palling around with some of the most prominent Republicans in Congress. What's going on? So it's funny because we're at this level now where 19-year-old Nazis can see the Nick Fuentes as a total fraud. But his message is appealing enough to the Marjorie Taylor Greens who want there to be a white nationalist youth movement. They sort of need a Fuentes-like character. And even though everybody in his immediate circles recognizes him as a fraud, as a grifter, as a bully, he is still someone who these opportunists in Congress can use to pull the party further right. And I think that's the real threat of Nick Fuentes. It's not that he's, you know, going to dox his followers. It's not that he's going to use a black light to see if there is any bodily fluids in his friend's apartment, which he's accused of doing. No, it's not that ridiculous stuff. It's that he is ingratiating himself with actual elected officials and he's a fascist. There is a, definitely a thuggishness to sort of bring it back to these interparty debates. A few years ago, Nick Fuentes and his crew and, and some allied groups decided that Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk were simping. They were cucking out on immigration. They were too moderate on immigration. And so because they have a handful of extremists at various college campuses, they started crashing Turning Point USA events and Charlie Kirk events and Dan Crenshaw speeches and just yelling at them and, and making these guys within this kind of closed ecosystem they're in make them look like fools. Now, what happens? Immediately, Charlie Kirk then comes out and says, actually, I'm insanely hawkish on immigration and basically starts parroting what Nick Fuentes is saying. So this group, despite its, its ridiculousness, does have a sort of ideological power within the right. That's right. Yeah. Charlie Kirk capitulated. That was weirdly depressing to me. Absolutely. I don't know why, but when I was like, Charlie, no, they're winning. <laughs> Yeah, and you've got to take that side by side with these ridiculous allegations being made on these ridiculous live streams. And it's like, that is actually the party momentum. You can point to how absolutely lunatic it is and also say that, you know what, this is something that somebody needs to get in check with. And it's a real clown show, but the clowns have guns. All right, well, down at the southern border, we have a different kind of QAnon crazy. These folks are trying to make inroads with migrant children. 
Can you tell me what that's about? Oh, doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> no. So picture this, right? You're a child. You've traveled from Mexico or maybe a, a country in South America. You travel all the way to the southern border. You're here to declare asylum. And as you bypass the fence, a bearded man in a Q shirt is the first thing you see. And he says, hey. I want to interview you about child sex trafficking. So this is the world described in a new New York Times story called QAnon Joins Vigilantes at the Southern Border. Oh, yikes. By Miriam Jordan. Now, here's what's going on. So most of this story focuses on a guy named Jason Frank, who is unfortunately a character I'm quite familiar with. Jason Frank is this guy with a big beard. And he's an interesting character because he's kind of become a big QAnon personality at a time when a lot of other QAnon people have under Q's orders to go undercover and stop talking about Q have stopped doing that. And so you have a lot more people talking vaguely about stolen elections and vaccines, but fewer people now are saying like quoting Q chapter and verse, stuff like that. Jason Frank, on the other hand, is still deep in it. And so his original rise to fame was he carried this very elderly veteran at a Trump rally. So they had this viral video of this guy being helped down by Jason Frank and another guy. He met with Don Jr. This was in 2020. So this was at a time where the Trump campaign was like, all right, how do we not alienate QAnon people, but also not have Trump say where we go and we go all. And so after this heartwarming moment, which I believe made it on Fox News, was this whole moment really in the Trump campaign for a week. Kaylee McEnany tries to interview him, this Jason Frank guy, and all he wants to do is talk about QAnon. And she's saying, so how did you uh, get into Trump? And he's like, well, I just love Q's clues. And then behind him, people start going like, where we go on, we go all, and just chanting. And she's like, so if you had something to say to Trump, what would you say? And he said, I'd say, is Q real? And so she's like, okay, bye. So this moment, these handful of moments, transformed Jason Frank into sort of the QAnon TED Talk class. And so I've seen him at conferences since then. He kind of travels the country. Now, catching up with him, he has set up by the border. And so what he's doing is he sets up at a place where people walk across the border right by the wall and turn themselves in. And he is sort of getting between these children and the Border Patrol. So before the Border Patrol gets there, they get across and there's this guy and the, these other QAnon believers who are offering them food, offering them hamburgers and just like, hey, come over here. And these people think, oh, great. This is a nice welcome. I love that this is happening simultaneous to the Republican panic about groomers like anybody who talks to a child oh, yeah. is suspect. <laughs> Hey, come over here. Do you want a hamburger? Yeah. It's so sauce. I'm taking these children and maybe some of the most desperate circumstances you can be in. And then I'm asking them very specific questions. So here's what Frank thinks he's up to. So this has come up in the past, this kind of intersection between QAnon and the border. And so what you have to understand is the QAnon people think that the reason Democrats want the border, want more migrants, more people across the border is at least in large part because people like Hillary Clinton are using this open border to traffic children for sex trafficking purposes so they can be drained for their blood in satanic rituals, stuff like this. This has come up before. There was that group, maybe 2019 veterans on patrol, that was convinced that they were trafficking children over the border to drain their blood to put it in cement, which made no sense at all. So I'm glad they refined the theory a little bit. Yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about the intersection kind of in the desert, in desert QAnon species. Right. So <laughs> this was a guy named Lewis Arthur who ran a group called Veterans on Patrol, despite not being a veteran himself. And so, and so this was a guy who 
had been kicked out of the Bundy Ranch standoffs. They had dubbed him Screwy Louie. He was considered <laughs> a loose cannon, even by Oof. the standards of people aiming guns at federal agents. And so he, in 2018, had discovered this, basically an abandoned cement plant, Mexico's state-owned cement company, Pemex, in the Arizona desert. And so he had found a homeless encampment on this site that had been abandoned. I mean, it was just a bunch of garbage, basically. And he becomes convinced, this is, QAnon is really kind of hitting its stride at this point. He becomes convinced that this is actually a way station for basically Pizzagate child sex traffickers. And he claims he's found a a child skull at the camp. All right. Well, basically, this gets a very credulous local news report. QAnon vigilantes from across the world flock to the camp, many of them armed, and they begin running these desert patrols deep into the desert looking for people trying to smuggle these children. As you said, there becomes this cement connection where it's like they want to drain the children to make cement for the elites. All very vague. Well, turns out the skull was an adult skull. It was found in miles away. As I said, it was a pile of trash. It really had nothing to do with sex trafficking or anything like that. But ultimately... Meyer gets busted because him and his buddies are breaking into random houses and saying, like, you think this is a sex trafficker's house? Maybe. They're doing, like, a Charles Manson creepy crawl. They're just, like, going through people's houses. It got so dark. Last time I checked on him, he was up in, I think, Idaho trying to crash a family court proceeding that he was uninvolved in. But last time I checked in on him in the desert, he was just emptying water bottles that people leave for migrants. So if you're really concerned about skulls in the desert, buddy, maybe you shouldn't be draining life-saving resources from people who are just trying to safely make the track. It's it's really dark. Well, yeah, where are all these skulls coming from? By the way, I'm going to dump a gallon of water into the sand. So he's sort of reinvented himself as like as a family court QAnon guy, which is sort of another thing you can do. And then meanwhile, there was previously, a few years ago, another sort of a vigilante QAnon militia that was basically impersonating the Border Patrol, and they would stop these migrants, and these people thought they were being taken by the Border Patrol. Ultimately, the leader of this group was also indicted. So suffice to say, the history of QAnon at the border is not covered in glory and people who have not been to jail as a result of their actions. But Jason Frank's giving it a shot. So basically what he does is he lures these kids in with offers of food, and then they interview them about the family members who are waiting to pick them up or to meet with them. Now, what they're doing here is supposedly looking for the sex trafficker. Like, it'll be like, I'm being picked up at Comet Ping Pong, or what have you, and then they'll say, gotcha. So, for example here, we got this quote, members of his team called this relative this migrant was meant to join, and then Frank said the group had discovered in his research that two of the four people living at the address had ties to organized crime cartels, claims for which he did not offer proof. Yeah, you know, just crimes. Right. This guy is not, I think, really plugged into all the databases that reveal who's organized crime and who's not. I mean, this is really a haphazard operation, but the Times is right to point out here, you've got these guys who are really hopped up on the border with these sort of phantom dreams of sex traffickers and this idea that they're going to be these big heroes. And you've got these kids who are just in these incredibly vulnerable situations caught in the middle of all of it. Yeah. I mean, it's really very grim, actually. It's these people who've convinced themselves that they're protecting children are now stopping children in dire situations and just basically scraping all the data on their family and their connections and where they're going. And they're not really saying what they're doing with that information either. So it's a really weird convergence of actual stranger danger, QAnon, and just unaccountable creeps. It's the kind of thing that I feel like we often cover on the podcast here where it's sort of like, this seems like it's not going to end well. Not at all. Okay, Will, who do we have as the guest this week? All right, Kelly, this week we're going to get a panoramic view 
of a bunch of, I think it's fair to say, real creeps. Our guest this week is James Pogue. He's a writer. He's a contributing editor at Harper's. And most interesting for our purposes, he's the author of a new Vanity Fair story about the new right, a sort of motley collection of bloggers, Peter Thiel, new Senate nominee, J.D. Vance, and also a people of the New York downtown ketamine scene. <laughs> so it's a volatile mix. And so I'm excited to see where James's reporting has led him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by reporter James Pogue. He's a contributing editor at Harper's and the author of a hot news story in Vanity Fair on the new right. I would say ominous movement, and we're having James on to try to figure out what's going on there. The story is called Inside the New Right, where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets. James, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So James, I mean, what is the new right, and how would you describe it to someone? How are they different from what people might think of as your average Republican? So on its basic level. The new right is kind of this attempt to reshape the Republican Party, an insurgent attempt to reshape the Republican Party in a sort of more nationalist, more deeply conservative direction, kind of like what you would see with Marine Le Pen in France, that kind of European-style nationalist right-wing party. That's kind of the surface level that a lot of people see at events like NatCon that I covered in the story. But the more intriguing and interesting and I think kind of engaging to a lot of people who are coming from directions that are not traditional American conservatism angle of the new right is that it's kind of an ecosystem of different critiques of liberal society, whether those critiques are coming from people who think there's a lot of people in this world who think that we need more nature in our lives and that liberal society has like ripped us into this kind of techno capitalist machine. That's a big formative part of it. There's a lot of people who think that we need more God in our lives and that even traditional American conservatism does not have enough muscle behind that push. And there's a lot of people who even just think that orienting society around like liberal values, liberal individualist choice is a mistake and that we should sort of revert to a collective common good vision of how to organize society. So it's a very strange and kind of febrile and diffuse movement, but it's all sort of this critique of the direction of liberal society over the last honestly, 400 years. James, something that's really interesting to me is the uh, prominence of a writer in this piece uh, named Curtis Yarvin. And I was actually reading some of his stuff maybe, what, seven years ago now when he was big in the neo-reactionary movement. And at the time, it was just a really nerdy movement. Like, there's no nice way to put it. It was very Reddit-heavy and people using all kinds of cringy memes. But what I interpreted from your piece is that since then, this movement has kind of expanded and 
brought on some players who maybe didn't fit that initial mold, including some more would-be trendy kind of Manhattan scene-ster types. Can you give us sort of a picture of who these figures are participating in the scene and what trends are there in this movement? Well, so Curtis is a person who, as you say, is avowedly nerdy even to this day. That's part of his cool appeal at this moment, I would tend to argue. But he was a longtime programmer. People who are interested in kind of the er history of Curtis can look now at something that is very trendy in downtown Manhattan called Urbit, which is a sort of Web3 decentralized internet that people are getting into and communicating on in downtown Manhattan very quietly, but they have like, they're going to have parties soon. They had a big gathering in Austin. And so when you talk about Curtis, Sorry, this is called Urbit? U-R-B-I-T. And this used to be Curtis's big thing. And he's not really in it anymore so far as I know, but it's a good illustration of how a kind of like nerdy rebellion against the powers that be that, you know, existed, I think Urbit's been around for almost 10 years as an idea, could now metastasize into something that like very cool people are getting into. I saw Dasha from Red Scare tweeting about Urbit just a couple days ago. So it's out there. And I just bring that up because Curtis is an avowed reactionary. He's someone who admires sort of modes of organizing society. He talks a lot about the Stuart monarchy, which was kind of the last absolutist, traditionalist, you might call it, dynasty of English kings. There's a lot of talk about monarchy. Is there a plan? A lot of these guys are like, well, I want a Caesar or I want a king. Is there a plan for how they're going to get a king? Well, read my Vanity Fair piece, which I say kind of as a joke, but the truth is that like the plan such as sketched there by JD it, at the end of the piece where you kind of, it's very bureaucratic and it's a very kind of like slow moving attempt to weed out bureaucrats and people at the Fed and things like this. That's the plan. The king that they're talking about is closer to Roosevelt than it is to James I, right? And there is a plan. I mean, you can go, if anyone's interested, you can go download the episode that Curtis did with a podcast called Good Old Boys. And he more or less like illustrates exactly what the plan is. It's like you come in, Curtis has this idea called rage that is retire all government employees. And there's echoes of that that go through mainstream Republican thought. That's kind of similar to their idea of dismantling the administrative state. Kind of his idea is you print a bunch of money, you retire all these people, whether they want to be retired or not. You seize the institutions, not only within government, but in academia, even people like the SPLC, you kind of, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is an organization that a lot of people on the right tend to view as essentially an intelligence gathering arm of the state. So you retire those people, you send marshals to the Fed, you wrap that up, and then you install your people. And you basically retain the constitutional structure of the United States. But you put in, a, whether it's Ron DeSantis or someday J.D. Vance or whoever it's going to be, you put him in with power resembling something like what Roosevelt was able to wield in 1933. And then you kind of get the state moving again. I realize you're not like, this is not your argument, but it's obviously like there's a lot of ideas going on. And so I'm just trying to nail this down here. Why don't they just say, well, we want New Deal Franklin Roosevelt? A lot of people will say that. I mean, again, when you start using the word they to describe the new right, it gets kind of tricky because different people want different stuff. And actually, let's get into who we're talking about here. I mean, I think two of the most prominent figures we're talking about here are Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance. I mean, and obviously J.D. Vance just won this Republican Senate primary in Ohio. What do you think his victory there 
means both for the future of, of this new right movement and where these guys all fit into the Republican Party? Oh, I think it's earth shattering. And maybe I'll look really stupid for saying that a few years down the line, but I thought that JD was going to win all along. And I think there's a big thing in sort of liberal conversations about JD. You hear the word buffoon a lot. You hear the word joker a lot. You hear the word faker a lot. And to me, I find that counterproductive, even if you think JD is pure evil, to assume that JD is not acting in good faith, I think is a very bad idea. I think he had a real transformation towards something like these new right ideas, where he started to view, as most people will know, JD was sort of elevated out of the white working class into Yale Law, through the institutions of the military, through Yale Law, through the help of people like Amy Chua, through the help of people like Peter Thiel, he became extremely wealthy. And he came around to an idea that those institutions that had elevated him were basically implacably opposed to the interests and values of the place that he came from. I think J.D. truly, truly views himself as a sort of dissident member of an oligarchical regime that should be toppled. And that's, he talks about a regime as though we're run by a Soviet Politburo, which jars a lot of people. And a lot of people don't realize when it comes out of his mouth is not a joke, right? And so I think a lot of people also sort of talk about JD as getting elevated by Trump's endorsement. That's true to some degree. But Peter Thiel, who you mentioned, who used to employ Vance and largely funded his campaign. Peter Thiel went to Trump, as far as I understand, and there were conversations, I would assume, about who Trump should endorse. And Trump endorsed the new right guy. Trump endorsed the guy who was going as far as you can possibly go with the America first nationalism, take over the institution stuff, the stuff that didn't happen in Trump go around one. And so my question is often, who's really pulling the strings there? Like, yes, Trump's endorsement helped JD, but also JD and Thiel made an argument to Trump about where the Republican Party should and will be headed. And I think that that's where it's going to go. So we're talking a lot about Peter Thiel, and also these pretty well-off institutions that were elevating J.D. Vance. Can you tell me about the money within this movement? Because it seems to kind of posture as maybe populist or supporting the working class, and yet it's undeniably full of people who are quite well-off, who come from very moneyed backgrounds. Right. Well, with the exception, again, of J.D. But Yes, that is true. I think the first thing to say is that it's a really, again, very comforting narrative for kind of people coming from the liberal side of things to think that this is all kind of a pocketbook product of Peter Thiel's nefarious influence. And unfortunately, if you have a sort of mainstream democratic view of how politics should work in America, that's actually not a very useful description for what's happening. There's this idea that like the whole new right ecosystem is this kind of wholesale product of Peter Thiel, who's funding every podcaster and meme poster and intellectual. Uh, and none of my reporting bears that out. He seems to be funding some people. He's certainly Blake Masters, who was long his right hand, uh, describes that pretty openly. But it's also, this is to some degree an organic thing. And I think that's even true of Curtis Yarvin, who is often portrayed as, quote, Peter Thiel's house philosopher. I don't think that's really true. As far as the politics, though, there's no chance in, there's no way that J.D. Vance would have ever won a major Senate primary without Peter Thiel's money. There's no way, uh, I think it's fairly possible that Blake Masters in Arizona will win his Senate primary, partially on the coattails of J.D.'s win. There's no way that Blake could possibly be a viable candidate without Peter Thiel's money. And so you get into this weird zone where 
all of these people who are claiming to be anti-elite are sort of sharing this worldview. To put it this way, Mark Andreessen recently was tweeting about how real elites in America are people in the media, that elite power in America functions from having media influence and political connections and being a part of what Curtis will often call the American aristocracy, this sort of Ivy League educated aristocracy that staffs our bureaucracies and universities and stuff. And it's just very weird because it's like, what you've done is you've essentially created a narrative and a worldview that absolves Peter, people like Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen of even calling themselves elite. They get to call themselves dissidents, right? And so it's very attractive to very rich people, of course, because they get to be rebels, they get to be outsiders, even as you control the means of production and have billions of dollars. And so that, I think, is a really dangerous and weird way of looking at it, where you're suddenly absolving the most elite people in our entire society of the term elite. And I think that that's going to have unfortunate and weird consequences going forward. One thing that I've noticed in this movement, and I'm glad you brought up Dasha from Red Scare, is there's a weird current of like disaffected former, at least like nominally socialist voices in here, people who claim to have been on the left and you can litigate how sincere they were in those beliefs. But how much is this pseudo lefty strain playing into this movement? Oh, I think probably more more than is even apparent on the surface, honestly. And I think that there's a really obvious reason for that. I mean, I come from a very leftist background, very leftist family, and the traditions of the left are still, to me, very important, even as I think that there's sort of becoming a little less relevant than they used to be. And I think that you can draw, my friend Alex Salmon did a tweet about this that I think is accurate. You can draw a real moment to where people started adopting this stuff because you had in 2020, especially a moment where it looked like America might elect someone who was going to reorient our societal values around something other than money. We were going to have a sort of shared populist project under Bernie Sanders to build a society where common values and something that runs a little bit against the shared values of liberal capitalism was going to possibly become dominant. And Bernie offered at the same time, an answer to the new right critique about the fact that America doesn't really seem to be able to govern anymore. Bernie was coming in and saying, hey, we're going to build such a huge coalition with such political energy that we're going to be able to do all this stuff that we always say we should do, universal health care, climate change, all this stuff. We're going to build such a movement that we're going to be able to get there. And then the rug got pulled out from under that. And we can talk and disagree about how deliberate that was on the part of the quote-unquote democratic establishment. But anybody who hoped for that at the moment that Bernie Sanders won in New Hampshire in 2020 kind of ended up very, very disappointed and very, very disillusioned. And the new right is over here saying, hey, okay, fine, come to us. We'll offer you private values. We'll offer you kind of conservative traditional family values. We will offer you a vision of state power that is different. It's centralized, but it's still, we're offering you a vision of, hey, this Roosevelt guy is going to come in and do stuff very quickly and change the world very quickly and respond to these crises. And I think it was pretty natural at that moment for a lot of people to adopt that. And so I think that that's something that the left and indeed the Democratic Party establishment has to kind of look at and wonder, hey, are we keeping these people who had such hope in the Bernie movement and now are really disillusioned and sort of cynical and finding this new right wing thing to be pretty exciting in a certain way? So this is such an interesting piece. 
there's all these different ideological strands going on. I'm reluctant to be a little reductionist on this because I, I think you've done a great job separating all this. But I mean, you read about this stuff and it's like, are these these people are just fascist, right? And I realize that's kind of simplifying it. But here, let me just read some of the quotes here. We got Curtis Yarvin here, kind of the, the ideological figurehead here saying, we need a national CEO or what's called a dictator. Now, he seems to have cleaned that up by saying now he wants a monarchy of everyone, whatever that means, right? Then at the end of your piece, we have J.D. Vance saying, we are in a late Republican period. And so here are your words, evoking the common new right view of America as Rome awaiting its Caesar. And then back to Vance here, if we're going to push back against it, we're going to have to get pretty wild and pretty far out there and go in directions that a lot of conservatives right now are uncomfortable with. And then we have Jack Murphy, who podcast listeners may remember as being a new right figure who was caught up in this whole webcam sex scandal. Then he says, among some of my circle, the phrase extra constitutional has come up quite a bit. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of dancing around from these guys about what they want. And it seems to be when you're talking about national CEO, I mean, we're talking about what, like a union between the government and business. I mean, these guys seem to be pretty explicitly talking about being fascist. Well, so it's interesting. So Curtis actually runs straight headlong into that question. And it's kind of tangentious. I'm thinking right now of a, a recent piece he did where it was titled Monarchism. It's not fascism, but it's still pretty based. <laughs> Great. So there you go. I mean, you, people can look that up and hear Curtis's answer. I'm going to be honest. I've taken heat for this. I'm going to keep taking heat for it. Part of why I'm able to report on this world is that I don't apply labels to it. And it's just my argument to people who think that I should be applying labels to it is sort of that, like, if there isn't somebody out there who can talk to people and have them be open and honest about what they think and be kind of clear about who they are and where they're coming from, then we won't even know about this stuff. And we'll be even two steps behind because their politics are going to be organizing whether or not anybody sort of on the left likes it or not. So like in the piece, I didn't bang the drum of this is fascism, this is fascism, this is fascism. But what's really interesting about it is that it kind of became a Rorschach test, right? Because for people who were really terrified by all those ideas that you just presented, it was a depiction exactly of looming American fascism and a threat to the Republic. And what's interesting is that so many people on the right now are so comfortable with these ideas that on the other side, the flip side, they were like, hey, this is such a fair and open-minded. And they sort of were very pleased that I wasn't labeling them and thought that, hey, this was the first time they'd been allowed to present their ideas in public for the first time. So I just think that it's kind of interesting, like our media spheres are so separate that something that people on the right could view as a fair portrayal of ideas that are very much sort of within their comfortable mainstream are the exact ideas that are truly, truly terrifying to liberals who watch CNN and were not aware that this was developed. And that, to me, portends something pretty dark about where we are all headed. So this right now is kind of a fringe movement or a subset of the Republican Party. Do you think it's something that can overcome what we might think of as more like vulgar Trumpism? I'm thinking about the QAnon shaman and the Marjorie Taylor Greens who don't seem to dress up their ideas in intellectualism. Do you think those two strands are competing? And if so, do you think one could overtake the other? Uh, I don't think that the sort of MAGA QAnon type people are really, really that conversant with the kind of ideas of the new right or even aware that to some degree, yeah, they are in competition, but it's passive competition. I think a sort of easier way to look at it is that what the new right types are doing is viewing the quote unquote Republican establishment, the club for growth, the corporatist kind of descendants of Reagan as more or less part of the same entity as 
Nancy Pelosi. They sort of view all this stuff. They talk about it frequently as the quote unquote blob, right? And they're going to war to try to take over the Republican Party to wage war against the blob. And there will be a political competition for the loyalties of the kind of Trumpian types, uh, because that's where a lot of the electoral energy was, right? So you saw in Ohio a kind of proxy fight, essentially, between the blob people and Peter Thiel and the new right people. And with Trump's help, Vance was able to win. And he was opposed by the Club for Growth. They ran a lot of ads against him. This kind of proxy war was really made explicit. And they were competing for the votes of the kind of MAGA masses. I think that that's going to keep going. I think the kind of question... I've talked to JD a lot about this, and I think the question that has to be asked is, it's really easy to talk about these populist ideas. It's really easy to talk about helping the quote-unquote working class, as a lot of people on the new right do. Once you get into power, once you get into the higher levels of Republican politics, like, are you going to be able to take power in that party from the donors? Are you going to be able to take power in that party from the Club for Growth, or are they just going to sort of co-opt you? Because that's where the money has always been. I have my own views about that. JD has his own views about it. He has said to me on the record, all of what he's doing will be a waste if he gets a nomination, gets into the Senate, and then sort of gets co-opted by the donors. That shows that he's thinking about it. I tend to think that that's the most likely outcome. Well, the article is in Vanity Fair. It's about the new right. It's a fascinating read. James, on another topic, you've also written a book a few years back called Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West about the Malher, the Bundy families, Malher standoff. Tell us a bit here briefly about the book and what strands do you see between that obviously very different section of the right and the new right you're covering now? Oh, good question. So I spent a lot of time with Ammon Bundy, who people who consume a lot of news probably know way too much about at this point. During that standoff, I was the one journalist who was allowed to kind of basically embed with him throughout the whole thing. I was very close with Lavoy Finicum, who was the guy who got killed at the shootout at the end of the standoff. And what was interesting about that moment was that it was the kind of last gasp of what you might think of as pure, hard libertarian populism in the American West. And so we often hear the term sort of anti-government, anti-government militia, anti-government, this sort of thing. That, to me, was never a purely great descriptor of the ferment and the kind of armed politics that shaped the West. But because corporate interests had so effectively fed people, like, you know, sort of the Republican rank and file, this idea that all government is bad and anything that capital and corporations do is good, that you kind of saw it. You kind of saw the libertarian thing merging with the anti-government thing, merging with this hardline, like, ultra-capitalist libertarian thing. That is absolutely gone today. And it's something that I think a lot of people who are viewing kind of the Republican right-wing ferment from afar don't really understand. So I live now in an area where like the militia, the local militia controls the county government where I live. Oh, no. So they won an election. And this is really interesting. They have done a Yarvinite coup of the county government. So they have purged people. They've purged the institutions. They have said, this is a direct quote from the, the head kind of most militant member of the militia. He said, we're the sons of bitches in charge now. And they went through, they got rid of yesterday, they fired the county health officer, they're getting rid of the county CEO. And so they're doing exactly the coup that Yarvin describes at a federal level. And what's interesting about this, and Ammon Bundy, who's the most famous sort of militia-linked figure in America, is not a great example. What's interesting about this is that here now, broadly speaking, what we are seeing is a kind of nationalist versus globalist 
kind of ideological battle line happening in a very rural county. And that is true, I think, across the West. I think all of our right-left, what used to be right-left politics are now reshaped along this sort of nationalist, globalist line. And so here people talk in exactly those terms. And they talk oddly, much like J.D. Vance. You'll have militia members talking about how they're a working class movement. You'll have militia members talking a lot about tech, about, as Tucker Carlson often does, about pot and Netflix, about how we're all sort of be like heading towards this dystopia. Blake Masters talks a lot about the bugs live in the pod, this kind of like idea that we're all going to live in a techno-capitalist world where we're not going to own anything, but we'll just like have our needs provided by corporations. That's what the militia stuff is about here now. And that to me is wild. That is absolutely new. And it happened in the last like three years. Wow. Well, that's a lot of material. That sounds super interesting. Are you on good terms with the militia? Are you going to be all right? Yeah. I wrote a piece for Harper's that's out now. It's out in the April issue. So I guess just left, but go find it. And it's about this secessionist movement. And I was in Palo Cedro, which is a pretty heavily kind of militia uptown the other day with my girlfriend. And I ran into one of the, one of the militia guys. And again, they just, because I don't label them, I just put their words out in front of people they were weirdly very happy with it. And that's not because I was in favor of them. I just let them talk for themselves. So if you want to be chilled by the same words that they are proud to be saying, you can check it out in Harper's. Great. Well, James, we'll certainly be looking forward to reading that article. Best of luck with the militia. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. And now it's time for Fresh Hell, the weekly segment where we tell you the weirdest stuff that your weirdest cousin is talking about that you're going to see on Facebook in about a week. Absolutely. So this week on Fresh Hell, we've got something called the Georgia Guidestones. Now, this is something that I think for many people, these words mean nothing. And yet, for people who are really steeped in the far right, this is as evil as they come. The words themselves turn to ash in your mouth. So this is relevant because the Guidestones have become, I should say, these giant tablets about two hours drive from Atlanta. These have become a an issue in the Georgia governor's race because the candidate in third place in the Republican primary, a teacher named Candace Taylor, who has the endorsements of folks like Mike Lindell and Lynn Wood, has proposed... Blowing them up. Let's demolish them. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to catch folks up on the symbolism of the Georgia Guidestones and just exactly why a Republican candidate wants to blow them up. And exactly. So I'm so glad we're doing this because this is one of the weirder wedge issues I think I've come across in local elections in a minute. So to catch viewers up, these are, I think, three big granite tablets, and they are engraved with messages about how to proceed with the society. Some of the underlying assumptions here is this is how to rebuild after a massive disaster. So it's things like leave space for nature. A lot of it is really kind of a big pretentious live, laugh, love sign in my mind. It's not (laughs) especially nefarious. In this house, we believe... So the backstory here, there is kind of a complicated backstory, but basically what happened is this is a a town called Elberton, Georgia, the granite capital of the world. And as we discuss the suspicious origins of these giant granite tablets, keep that in mind. So back in 1979, a mysterious figure named R.C. Christian emerged in Elberton and said, I would like to build 200,000 pounds plus worth of giant granite tablets. It's kind of my own Ten Commandments. Basically what he did was he, he commissioned these tablets and he 
bought this farmland and they are it's not explicitly spelled out but the suggestion is that this is the cold war the idea was that he wanted to build him and his backers wanted to build some kind of monument that could withstand nuclear winter a nuclear exchange all this with advice for the remaining humans and so as you said i mean some of these are very like leave room for nature and some i will admit are a little weird and i think if you focus on them too much as some people have they could drive you nuts and so many things i think we talk about start with well it is a little weird i'll give them that and so in this case the first rule is keep the population under 500 million now this is kind of the big catching point but i think for if you consider that this is a nuclear exchange perhaps there's 50,000 people left and so maybe they have a little bit to go before 500 million but this started pretty quickly after the tablets were put up this made people think that this is not for some kind of canical for Leibowitz type apocalyptic future this is the new world order this is George Soros this is the great reset folks they're laying down their plans for now now why have they decided to build them on a bunch of tablets in the middle of Georgia we'll deal with that later you've got to have the terms and conditions somewhere so you hide them away it's just put them in a field in georgia you can visit them if you need (laughs) exactly so i think that's a great way to put it it's sort of like the terms and conditions for the new world order and so especially starting in like 2008 there was a big kick up obviously with conspiracy theorists with the obama presidency and people were saying we gotta blow up these satanic stones this has really kicked up with covid where people like a lot of the stuff about like the new world order or more recently the great reset the idea that the davos people are all in league to enslave us it kind of lacks the like, okay, well, why would they do that, though? Like, why are they giving us poison vaccines? Why are they putting microchips in the vaccines? Whatever. And the answer they come to is because they want to drastically reduce the population and enslave everyone who's left. And the Guidestones are really key to that because suddenly that is like a real thing that exists that they can focus on. So a few years ago, Alex Jones went there and kind of shouted at the Guidestones. <laughs> In this case, Candace Taylor is, I believe, the first candidate to endorse the blow up the Guidestones agenda. She's kind of trying to stand out, right? I mean, we're, this is a race between Brian Kemp and David Perdue. Trump wants Perdue to oust Kemp for being insufficiently loyal in 2020. And Candace Taylor is like, y'all heard about the Guidestones? <laughs> I love it because she needs like some kind of pyrotechnics in this case, very literally to fuel her campaign. And it's so funny. You bring this up like this movement started kind of 2008. And this really does feel like a 2008 issue. This feels like a rehash of like when the satanic temple would put like a a big goat statue outside a courthouse to argue against a Ten Commandments statue. It's almost quaint. Totally like a thing that would be like written up on one cat. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And kudos to her for kind of bringing that back into the fold. Candace Taylor's an interesting character. She seems to be constantly at Linwood's plantation to Motley, sort of scheming on her campaign. She had previously tried to stand out by banning being a furry in public schools. She had released this slate of executive orders that included bans on furries. Oh, that's never going to happen. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Teachers will not allow that. This is what we talked about before, which is this idea that, that kids are identifying as cat, this misinformation out there, and demanding litter boxes in the classroom. So she jumps on that. Apparently, that didn't create enough of a stir. I tweeted about it, and I think that was just about it. And so then she says, all right, I'm going to release executive order x and then it's a video of her driving to the guidestones and it's like these damn guidestones and she's talking about all the satanic sacrifice and stuff like that as far as i can tell i mean it got kind of a jump on the kind of fringier telegram channels i don't think it's really changed the polling so much but one thing interesting to me is i mean this is a sort of a rural quarry town in georgia but they love their guidestones 
They're not giving them up. This kind of gets into the origins of the Guidestones, because no one knows, and, and the two guys who supposedly know R.C. Christian's real identity are both dead. The last one died last year. But it is interesting that a town that loves granite so much has made a giant monument about how weird and interesting its granite is. So there are some skeptics who say that the town local granite enthusiasts put these up themselves. And it doesn't quite make sense to me because it's like, why would you make this weird satanic monument to your local industry? <laughs> and yet, so I asked the mayor of Elberton, I said, they're coming for the Guidestones. What do you think? I mean, this is the tourist attraction in Elberton. I mean, they are not giving these up. And he said, maybe she should focus more on the wonders of Elberton granite rather <laughs> than watching so many YouTube videos. I mean, this guy is on message. And so he's like, the Elberton granite industry will long outlast Candace Taylor's anti-Guidestones campaign. That is, in its way, very inspirational. I love what this actually boils down to is these are a kooky roadside attraction that probably means a lot to locals. But unless you're making a weird satanic sticking point about this, it's not really known. And it's really the equivalent of like saying you're going to go and blow up the world's largest Paul Bunyan statue. Like that's... <laughs> Most people don't know about it, but he's too big. <laughs> What's that ox up to? <laughs> this is idolatry. We cannot have the large Paul Bunyan. He's too big. No, the only people who know about this are people who think it's a cute local affectation and they're not going to give it up. It's kind of funky. I like it. It's like a keep Elberton weird campaign. And it's like, yeah, maybe this is the New World Order's plans, but it's what we've got. <laughs> if it's the New World Order, that's pretty damn tame. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.